Welcome to the podcast of the preaching ministry of LifePoint Church, led by Pastor Lane Harrison. We pray this ministry is a blessing for your life. For more information about LifePoint, please visit lifepointozark.com. For more information and resources from Pastor Lane, please visit mlaneharrison.com. Let's go to the Word this morning. I'm continuing the series, the Entrusted series, as we look at all that the Lord is doing in our church's life in this season and the season to come. And today we're going to talk about the Lord's steward motivated by grace, motivated by grace. Let me ask you this, what motivates you to give? What motivates you to give of your own finances? You know, it's interesting The generations teach us a lot about how it is they perceive and and, and even value money and the treasure of life. But one of the things that statistics do is they teach us there are many commonalities across the generations. It's very interesting to look at at, uh, 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 the elder generation that they call it now and the boomer generation and then the greatest generation of all, the Gen Xers. We don't even believe that about ourselves. Uh, And then the millennials, enough said. Uh, And then uh, Gen Y and Gen Z. And I I don't even know the labels that they're putting on everything. I don't even buy into the labels so many times. However, the point being, so many of the commonalities that you too would understand across those is people give when they see need. They give to vision and to purpose and they give to make an impact. They want to know that what they give matters for the reason they give it. But what if I told you today that the Bible teaches there's only one real motive for giving? What if I told you that the Bible teaches there's only one principal motive for us to give? That's what I'm going to propose to you today. Now, let me explain something about the message today. It's going to be a little different in format Because while I'll still be drawing from an expository base, I'm going to use the systematic treatment of a subject in order to cover a broader scope of the counsel of God's word, okay? What I'm saying in that is we're going to flip to a lot of different verses, okay? All of them will be on the screens, but I want to encourage you to put your finger or to put a piece of paper and mark those. I'll give them to you briefly. Outside of Matthew 6, uh, Matthew 6 you might want to turn to 1 Corinthians 16 and 2 Corinthians 8 and Philippians 4. We'll get there throughout the message, but we will begin in Matthew chapter 6 as we consider how it is that the Lord's steward is motivated by grace in the giving of life's treasure. Let me read the word and then I will return to the message. Matthew chapter 6 verse 19, our Lord teaches, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. 
May God bless the reading, the hearing, the understanding, and the obeying of his word today. If you want to understand this verse and this passage, you need to put a circle around the word treasure and a circle around the word heart in verse 21 and draw a line between the two. That's the impetus of Jesus' teaching. He says to us that your life follows your treasure because your heart is steered by its highest glory and its greatest value. He is not telling us that our life is better when there's more. Quite, quite honestly, very often the opposite is the case, statistically speaking. Rather, what Jesus is teaching us is that whatever consumes your treasure will be that which consumes your heart. Therefore, Jesus instructs us to lay up treasure in heaven where moth and rust cannot break in and steal. How do you lay up treasure in heaven? Any of you know your heavenly bank account number and your routing number? No, it doesn't work that way. Then how does it work? You see, Christians lay up treasure in heaven by honoring the Lord through faithful stewardship on earth. It's one of the greatest ways that we take the tangible, temporary things of this world and we apply them and steward them in such a way to bring eternal glory to our life through it. I know some always respond when you teach on topics like this. Pastor, I don't need to give my money to God to control my heart. I can keep my heart wanting God without worrying about giving my money to him. Friends, I'm going to be real honest, but I'm going to get real personal with you, and I hope this doesn't sting as much as it possibly could. The fact of the matter is, you can't keep your heart from wanting a big, greasy, sloppy hamburger with sloppy fries, even if the doctor tells you it's the worst thing you could do. I got an amen in the first service for that one. <laughs> I mean, the fact of the matter is, we all know statistically Taco Bell has subgrade four level meat, and yet your heart longs for that value menu. <laughs> Am I right? Do not argue with me about controlling your heart. None of us can overcome the desire for sub-grade four level meat when it's properly packaged and marketed. Knowing that your treasure directs your heart it's important for each of us to ask, what then motivates us to give? You know, many think, well, when I make more, I'll begin to give or I'll give more. But statistically, that's factually not true. Of Christian families making less than $20,000 a year, 8% gave at least 10 or more percent of their income. But for families making $75,000 or more a year, that figure drops to only 1%. Now that figure is from 2017 statistics. So they're six years old. But here in a minute, I'm gonna show you that statistically speaking, things have not moved in a positive direction. Okay? Another statistic Excuse me. So the statistics show based on that, the more money a person makes, the less likely they are to tithe. Another stat I heard earlier this year really put things in perspective and it just hit me as I heard it tell. It was a comparison uh, uh, between Starbucks customers, regular customers, and the average church attender. 
Starbucks customers are more committed to Starbucks than the average church attender is to their own church. So that's a big statement, isn't it? I mean, I just go and get coffee there. That's all I do. The average, here's what they base that off. The average Starbucks customer spends over $2,800 a year on sugar. I mean, drinks. In 2017, an average church attender gave $650 annually. That was six years ago. Today, that figure is less than $200 a year. Would you believe me if I told you that as of 2017, 37% of people who attend church weekly identify themselves as evangelicals, give no money to their church. And that's six years old. When it comes to stewardship in the church, statistics reveal a sobering reality for us, friends. Stewardship statistics reveal that the greatest reason Christians and churches are in such hard times based on the teaching of Jesus in Matthew 6 is this, because so little of our hearts are consumed with him. Christians give to God as a response of faith to his love with the treasure of their life, just as in serving they respond with their talents and abilities and gifts and as with their time in Sabbathing or resting in him. So today I want to attempt to answer some questions and at least address them. Number one, what does the Bible teach? And number two, how should Christians think about and practice their giving? One great passage of general wisdom from the wisdom book itself, Proverbs chapter 3, verses 9 and 10 states, Honor the Lord with your wealth, with the first fruits of all your crops. Then your barns will be filled to overflowing, and your vats will brim over with new wine. You see, the Bible commands Christ followers to give, not as a law or obligation, but rather to honor God with the treasure and the wealth of their life. So however we give, we must honor God in order for it to be biblical and faithful to the teachings of the scripture. You see, giving is the Christian's most practical way of honoring God with that which is most hallowed in the world. That which is most hallowed in the world. And here's what I want you to see today. Grace motivates Christians to live faithful as stewards so that the discipline of giving produces greater grace for stronger faith in life. How grace motivates giving is the topic of our message today. There are four principal passages that shape the, uh, the main corpus of teaching in the New Testament. These aren't the only verses, but they are, shall I say, the largest portion of New Testament teaching on Christians and their giving. You see, when a Christian draws from grace as their motivation for giving, the discipline of giving produces an increasing experience of God's grace in life. And experiences have become important, have they not? I talked to you all ago about the motivations of the different generations that are sitting in the room, even here. 
there are things that motivate differently. And we began to hear with the millennial generation that they didn't care about collecting all the stuff. They didn't intend to build yet another garage on their house so they can store stuff that they're never gonna remember they even have. Instead, they said, we want experiences. We wanna see the world. We wanna taste, touch, and smell the world. And we're going to force you to indulge it on social media by our newsfeed. Their value went from owning stuff of all the previous generations to experiencing it. And you see, it's, it's not that one is more right than the other. It's not that one isn't as valuable as the other. The fact of the matter is, it's just different value systems. So what does the scriptures teach all of us about giving and the discipline of giving? He it teaches us that there is an increased experience of God's grace in our life when we practice faithfulness in our stewardship. I want to identify nine qualities that characterize one's giving as motivated by grace today. Now, those of you who know me, your first thought was, dude, you're never going to get through all nine. <laughs> yes, I am. And we won't even be here till lunch. The 11 o'clock service, I'll make no promises. It's gloves off and we're going to roll. I want to provide for you nine qualities that characterize our giving as motivated by grace. Let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 2, as we look at the first quality. Giving that is motivated by grace is, first of all, systematic. Systematic. Chapter 16, verse 2 of 1 Corinthians states, On the first day of every week, each one of you should set aside a sum. Should set aside a sum on the first day of every week. Now, let me clarify. Paul's presumption here is that the first day of the week is what we would call Sunday. Regardless of what your Google calendar may have it listed as, he's speaking of the Lord's day here, of the day that we honor the Lord. And he's saying on that day, you should set aside a sum. He's teaching us that giving should be done on a regular basis with regularity, whether it's weekly or monthly or bi-monthly or, or however it is that your pay structure is scaled. But in the same way, in the same way that the scripture teaches us to remember the gospel, remember the Lord Jesus Christ, because in it our heart is encouraged and strengthened, he's also telling us that we ought to remember the Lord on a regular basis when we come to the issue of giving. Our giving shouldn't be disconnected from our relationship with God, but intricately woven in. This first quality of grace-motivated giving also aligns with the biblical principle of first fruits. What is a first fruit? Well, what we give to God is not simply to be a portion of what we have, just any part, but rather it's to be the first portion and the best portion. What and how we give must represent God's worth to our life and what it should say about God for faithfulness is that he is our priority in life, in all things. So grace that is, or giving that is motivated by grace should first be systematic. Secondly, he moves on in the second part of verse two of 1 Corinthians 16 to teach us that giving should be, that, that is motivated by grace should be proportional. Look what he says, that it should be done in keeping with his income. In keeping with his income. He's saying that there is a, 
proportionate measure that giving should be in relationship to, and that is with one's income. In 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 3, he continues to teach this in a different way. He says of the Macedonians that they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability. So there's a proportionate scale that he's referring to here to say, look, they were able to give this, but they ended up giving all of this too. And then in verse 12 of that same chapter, he said that the gift is acceptable according to what one has. So all of these verses are teaching us this quality of proportionality in our giving that is motivated by grace. The Bible teaches that what we give should be in proportion to how it is that God has prospered you. God's not holding you accountable for someone else's income. He wants you to look at your life. He wants you to count the numerous ways that he's blessed you. He wants you to count your many blessings, name them one by one, and consider what does this mean to you? What value does this hold in your life? Giving to God as an act of worship represents the treasure that God has given to you. And so a steward recognizes that all that we have belongs to God. This is the impetus of stewardship as Christians, that not just some of what I have belongs to God, that God gets just a percentage of it or a portion of it, but rather all that I am and all that I have is his. And that's why the Bible establishes a portion of all we have that's set apart as God's, and that's what is called the tithe. Now let me make an argument here where I'm streaming where I am swimming upstream against the current of current thinking. Tithe is a word that means tenth. That's what the word literally means, one tenth. And it also means that it is a first portion of the whole that represents the whole. So in other words, when you give a tithe of something, you're not just giving a percentage of it, but in the giving of that first percentage of it or portion of it, you're representing the whole of it. That's what the scriptures teach. And God ordains the first portion as distinctively his to represent that the giver is his. That we, the one who would give it, are his. And that all that we have is from him and that all that we have is because he provides for full sufficiency of all of our needs. So the Christian stewardship, friends, is a testimony. It's a testimony to the goodness of God, the faithfulness of God, the provision of God in our life, and the protection of God for our life. When we are not faithful in stewardship, we're making a claim that God has not been faithful in his provision and his protection of us. When we're not faithful in our stewardship, we make the claim that God has not been faithful in his joy and his pleasures forevermore that he has promised to us. When we're not faithful in our stewardship, we're making a claim that God has not been faithful in all that he has promised for us. And in any way we use our money to try and make up for where we believe God in some way is faltering or letting us down, we're making a false claim against God himself. You see, friends, tithe doesn't accomplish or fulfill anything. It was included in the law, but it was never originally the law. 
Rather, tithe reveals and expresses the state of one's heart with God. Let me give you some statistics on this because I think we all want to know where do things practically fall out on this, but we just don't want to be included in that. You know what I'm saying? So the statistics that I'm speaking to you of here are drawn from a couple of different national research firms, Barna being probably the most recognizable of those, but they're speaking of the church as a whole in modern-day America. Some of them are from 2017. Some of them are more recent because I think showing the trajectory sets a stark picture of our day and time of where we are as the church today. The first stat I'll give you is just simply this. The statistics tell us that two to two and a half percent of all Christians tithe. That's in 2022, or 23 rather. That's actually down from three to five percent in 2017. So it's fallen by almost 50 percent in just six years. Of that two to two and a half percent, 77 percent give 11 to 20 percent of their income or more far more than the word tithe even would represent itself. 97% of Christians who tithe make it a top financial priority to give to their local church. 70% who tithe base it on their gross income and not their net income. You may not know this, but that's a very common question that as a pastor I've gotten through the years. Pastor, should I give and tithe off my net income or my gross income? And I only have one response to that. Do you want to be netly blessed or grossly blessed? I mean, this is not my promise and my words. I'm just telling you what the word teaches. But listen to the practical nature of this, friends. Parents, hear this one. People are more likely to practice tithing when they begin in their teens or early 20s. Well, that that ought to be speaking to us as parents. And I can tell you, at such a young age that I am today, I still hear my mother's voice instructing me and nurturing me in this understanding. Not that I was ever hesitant about it. I'm just saying. I'll correct that in a few minutes with another story. Listen to this one. People who tithe regularly typically have less debt than any other demographic. 80% of faithful tithers have zero credit card debt. 28% are completely debt-free, including their home mortgage. Statistics reveal that tithing not only honors God, but it's a practical advantage to establish a stronger financial portfolio. Now the argument is also often given, not only to me, but in the broader context of the church, but tithe is an Old Testament law. It's not for New Testament believers. Hogwash. And I'm going to tell you why. I'll tell you why. I'll tell you, you didn't hear that from me. You didn't hear it here because we don't believe that. We don't teach that. The Old Testament tithe serves for the New Testament giving in the same way that the Old Testament sacrificial system serves for the foundation of our understanding of Jesus' crucifixion for our salvation. 
You see, how would we know what Christ accomplished for us on the cross? And why would it mean anything to us if we didn't have Leviticus and Numbers and all of those books that teach us about the sacrifices that were repeatedly made? And when Hebrew speaks of those sacrifices, it said that even the people who were bringing their lambs and bringing their bulls for the sacrifice, they knew that those sacrifices were not cleansing nor forgiving them of their sins, but the very practice of it was something they went through in order to remind them of the one that would forgive them of their sins. Imagine you have none of that understanding. It's just a good guy that hit a really bad day because that's about the best you can say about it at that point. So when we come out of the Old Testament You have to understand that the tithe establishes a foundation for our understanding of New Testament giving. Tithe was never in the law to begin with. It starts in Genesis 14 when Abraham comes back from a victorious war and he meets Melchizedek, a a, a priest in, in the way of Christ, if you will, Hebrews instructs us. Somewhere that we we don't know where he came from and we don't know where he went, but we knew he was a priest of the Most High and Abraham gave him a tenth of everything he had. Why? Because he demanded it? No, because it was an offering of Abraham recognizing that it was God who had given him the victory, hence it was God who had given him everything that he owned in life. That's where tithe is introduced. When it comes to Moses and Moses writes the law that we understand in the Old Testament now, the tithe was brought into the law and there were certain ramifications and practices that are definitely part of the law because the whole impetus of the law was to teach God's people how to honor God with their whole life. And our bank account's an important part of our life, right? Yes, it is. Let me tell you this too. As we walk through these qualities, the simple practice of tithing, but just by the regular simple practice of tithing, you will fulfill seven of the nine qualities of grace-motivated giving. Seven of the nine. And I'll, I'll point out the two that you can't fulfill. They'll be pretty obvious. So the second, uh, uh, the second quality is that giving motivated by grace should be proportional should be systematic, it should be proportional. Thirdly, it should be sacrificially generous. Go back to 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 2 and 3. Paul tells us he's writing of the Macedonian people here. He says, out of the most severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. They gave even beyond their ability. We've already seen the end of that there in the first Uh, quality. But we see it again here that the grace of God overflowed with joy even in the midst of extreme poverty so that they were able to give beyond their ability. Here we go to Philippians chapter 4 verses 17 and 18 and Paul is writing to the church at Philippi and he's thanking them for the money that they have sent to him to support his ministry and he says this, I have received the gifts you sent. They are a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice. They are pleasing to God. What Paul is saying to the Philippians is, listen, I've been separated from you. You could have forgotten about me. You could have not given, and you would have been none guiltier for doing so. But you didn't forget. 
You were willing to sacrifice and to remember and to send so that you could support the work. You see, faith, friends, empowers Christians to give not only what we can afford, but even beyond that. Because what we believe about God and what he would have us to give is what we begin to entertain and to, uh, to look towards when we desire to give sacrificially generous. We trust him for our provision by our giving. And God leads us to give beyond our means because it places us in full dependence on him. And one of the reasons we don't like to give sacrificially is because we don't want to have to depend on God where it matters most. Friends, that's a dangerous pattern of thinking we should never want to rely on self and substitute for God and when we only give out of our personal management which I've already argued for the first two qualities in the importance of our own management but when we only operate out of that we remove any need for God and we try to honor God without faith and you know what Hebrews says without faith it's what it's impossible to please God So when we practice sacrificial generosity, we say to God, God, not my will, but thy will be done in my life, in this area, in this way, in this sacrifice. The fourth quality is that giving that is motivated by grace is intentional. Again, verses two and three, man, these two verses are packed, aren't they? Paul says that they urgently pleaded with us. Who? The Macedonians. They urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in the service to the saints. They wanted to give. Paul Paul is saying that the Macedonians were those kind of people that if you invite them to dinner, you better know what you want them to bring because they're not walking through the door empty-handed. If you don't tell them something, they're still bringing something. Right? They're going to have a salad. They're going to have a side dish. I mean, with me, I'm bringing my appetite. That's what I'm always faithful to bring. But there are some, and that's what the Macedonians were like. You can tell us, but if you don't tell us, we're still sending it. And then in chapter chapter 4, Philippians, verse 17 and 18, we look at that again. He says, for even when I was in Thessalonica, you sent me aid again and again when I was in need. Again, not only sacrificially generous, but it was intentional. You see, faithfulness in our stewardship never happens by accidents, friends. Our regular practice of counting the cost of following Jesus as he instructs us to means that we intentionally say no to the world so we can say yes to him in ever-increasing and ever-deepening ways and means. Friends, as Christians, we don't wait to be moved by need. We don't wait to be stirred by emotion. We are intentional to invest the resource and the treasure of our life in the work of God's kingdom every day every day because we know we honor him when we do that. He intentionally came and gave himself for us while we were yet sinners, while we were still his enemies, Christ died for the ungodly. That was intentional. We live intentionally. Number five, giving that is motivated by grace is purposed by love, by equality and blessing. By love, equality and blessing. Look at a few verses later in 2 Corinthians 8, verses 8 and 9. It says, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor so that through his poverty you might become rich. 
That verse so reminds me of 2 Corinthians chapter 5, just a few verses before. In verse 21, or a few chapters before, verse 21, where it says, God made him who knew no sin to become sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And what Paul is teaching, the same guy that wrote that verse, wrote these verses, he's saying there's a transaction of a great exchange that happens even in our finances. And we do it in reflection and response to Jesus Christ. Verse 13 of 2 Corinthians 8, he says, Our desire is not that others might be relieved while you are hard-pressed, but that there might be equality. Equality. Now let me explain, because this word has gotten used, abused, and every other way wrongly put forth in our day and time. What Paul is saying here is not how it has been skewed in so much of the headlines today when they're talking about matters of social justice and, and equity and those kinds of things. But what Paul is saying is that grace motivates us as the body of Christ to say, you know what, we are one body in Christ. And if one part suffers, we all suffer. But if one part is blessed, we should all be blessed. And when I have ample I am able to share and to give in such a way that alleviates your need and blesses you in a time when blessing is needed. And then he says this in chapter 9, verses 6 and 10 and 11. He says, remember this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Now he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food, that's God, will also supply and increase your store of seed and will enlarge the harvest of your righteousness. You will be made rich in every way so that you can be generous on every occasion. And through us, your generosity will result in thanksgiving to God. That's the blessing. That God gives us what we have, not just for us, but through us to be a blessing to other people. This is what it means to give out of love because Christ loved us when we were unlovable. This is what it means to, to give out of equality so that other people can be blessed in times of great need. And this is what it means to say, Lord, I know that when I practice faithful stewardship in my life, I'm living on the flight of your blessing. Cloud nine is below me. Whatever way you want to bless me. Just because people pervert, skew, and misuse the blessings of God to make promises God never makes doesn't mean God doesn't have blessings and promises attached to faithful stewardship. Are you tracking with me there? Be careful that you won't hear something because in a way you've maybe heard it said otherwise was wrong. Don't dismiss what God says by going, yeah, well, that's not really what he meant. Well, that's what he said. You know, if you want to take some time to unpack verses 10 and 11 and just meditate them on them in your heart, let me encourage you to do this. It will swell your heart in hope for God but it will also challenge you in the great need to be richly generous to the extent of the great riches of God. You know, friends, the greatest factor in determining to give is the why. That's why Simon Sinek wrote the book, Begin With Why. 
Because in all of his, in all of his argument, he says that in business and commerce and church, everything, he says, the thing that most motivates people is why. And that's why grace is the one dominating factor of motivation for Christians. When you consider why you give, it should always return you not to yourself, but first of all to God and then to others, some of which you don't even know yet. Stewardship recognizes that God blesses us to be a blessing to others. And when we show love practically through giving, we're demonstrating God's love. We're demonstrating God's blessing to other people. And so stewardship honors God when we give to demonstrate that love and equality towards others simply to be a blessing, to be a blessing. Number six. Now, when we come to number six, this is the first quality that tithing cannot accomplish. This is the first of two that tithing cannot accomplish. Giving that is motivated by grace is cheerful. Tithing cannot make you cheerful. As a matter of fact, I've met some people, I've become absolutely convinced there wasn't anything that could make them a cheerful person. There are days that my wife is convinced you can't be made to be cheerful. <laughs> what does Paul say? 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 7, he says, each man, each person should give, not reluctantly, for God loves a cheerful giver. God loves a cheerful giver. And Proverbs chapter 22, verse eight says, God loves, yea, blesses a cheerful and generous person. You see, cheerfulness will likely not be the result of giving, but it will become the most rewarding aspect of your giving. I'll tell you a story about myself that kind of undoes some of what I said at the beginning. My first couple of months of college, I stopped giving to church. I still went occasionally, not real regularly, but I just stopped giving. This was completely counter to the instruction of my parents throughout my life. They were very faithful to teach me uh, faithful stewardship in life. And, and I'll be honest with you, I'm probably going to get a text later today from my mother after she watches the service here, and she's going to say to me, Lane, Lane Harrison, Mason Lane Harrison, and I'm going to have to deal with that, so... I want you to know this vulnerability is a very costly one for me today. But you know, I began to notice that church and God became less important to me at that time of my life. And, and after a couple of months, really with nothing directly associated with my lack of attending, I began to get conflicted in a decision about a situation in my life. Can't imagine that. I was a freshman in college. I thought I had everything under control, right? But the conflict within was, was not so much that the world was colliding and how would I stop it. It was, I'm sure, far less significant than that on the world order. But in my heart, it was conflicting me to a sense that, that I couldn't avoid it anymore. And, and, and it got to a point where I knew enough about God. I was a believer at this time. I just wasn't living faithful to him. That I, I began to ask in my heart, why didn't God just take care of this? What? He knows what I want. He knows what I need. Why didn't he just take care of this? He's God. Is he sleeping? He checked out. And friends, through that process, the Holy Spirit convicted me to realize how less important God had become in my life. 
And primarily, he pointed to my lack of giving. And through that process, that next week, which is very near the very end of my first semester in college, I decided I'm going to get up in the morning and I'm going to go to church. And I'm going to give. Because that's what I believe God is convicting me to do. That week, I started tithing again. Now, as a college student, it did not sway the S&P. It did not move any of the, you know, stock market measurements. I'm pretty sure the church didn't even recognize any difference by what I was given as a first-year college student. But you know who did recognize the difference? Me. Me. I did. You see, investing where you get to experience the powerful, powerful work of God, it brings a joy that's unmatched. Not every gift will be from cheer, but every gift will multiply the glorious joy of heaven in your heart. God's promised that he will not disappoint. You may give it out of, out of severe angst of what may be, but I will trust God on what he has promised. And I'm telling you, he will respond in lavishing and pouring something out on you you could have never imagined before. When our joy or when our giving brings joy from God, we can be assured that our treasure is submitted to Jesus. Number seven, giving motivated by grace is voluntary. 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 7 says, Each man should give what he has decided in his own heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion. Friends, this message, nor are the teachings of Scripture in any way to twist your arm to make you do something against your own will. What I am attaining to do today is simply teach the Word and the counsel of God's Word regarding this topic so that you in your own walk with the Lord can work it out between him. When people argue, though, that the Bible does not command giving as a law, they're both correct and missing the point. If an expression of love simply fulfills an obligation, then nothing can be received from that gift because it's not an expression of love. Let, let me say that another way. If the love you have for your spouse is nothing more than an obligation, your marriage is already on shaky ground whether you feel it or know it yet or not. There's nothing that's going to come from that because obligation is not an expression of love. When we give voluntarily, we, we receive the full blessing as the giver and God works in us to lead us to give voluntarily so he can bless us even more. And also, friends, as is wrongly done with this verse, this verse is not a provided excuse to give whatever you want. That's what the New Testament says, that we should give whatever we decided in our own heart. It's, it's teaching us to give by grace. What this verse does do in accordance with the teaching of God's word, it gives us a metrics to assess and evaluate our own heart when we do or don't give. Too many Christians take no time with their hearts full of Christ to decide what to give. When they determine what they're going to give, they kind of move away a little bit from the relationship to Christ because they don't want to be overly influenced. And what the scripture teaches is that we, be, we should be fully submitted. 
They only want to consider what the bank account says is allowable without too much effect. But friends, when we give this way, we we fail to realize that we have given from our heart that is empty, absent, and weak for Christ. God works in us to lead us, to give voluntarily so he can fill us with more of his presence and more of his power through Christ. Quality eight, giving motivated by grace means we excel in giving. Just as you excel in everything, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 8, 7, see that you also excel in the grace of giving. As our relationship with Christ grows, so should our giving to him. Growth is a natural part of living things. When giving fails to grow, stagnation sets up in the heart. And in all, love for Jesus motivates our giving. It's not about emotion or sentiment. It's about sacrificial commitment. We we do not make Jesus love us more. We could not make Jesus love us more or less through giving. But we do come to love him more as we practice giving more to him. That's the impetus of Jesus' words that we began with in Matthew 6. Your heart is inseparably linked to your treasure. When you give to him, you will love him more. Or you will find that you have disdained for him for reasons. And that in and of itself will be the very point at which God wants to bring forgiveness, healing, restoration, whatever the case may be of him working in your heart. That's how it becomes an assessment for us. And don't we want to grow in life? I don't ever hear anybody going, you know, I'd like for my marriage just to be a little less satisfying. I I never hear people going, you know what? I'd like to be a little worse at parenting. If I could just pull that off, that'd be so helpful. No, we want to be better. We want to have a better marriage, a a greater marriage, a more intimate marriage. We want to be more faithful to our kids. How many people go into competition going, today we're going to lose. And I'm a Razorback and a Cowboys fan. That took a lot of faith to use that one right there, friends. How many of us go, you know what? I need a little less recreation in my life. Our desire to excel, to grow and to mature, it it makes sense according to the scriptures for a reason. Quality number nine, giving motivated by grace is established on the promise of grace. This is the second of two that cannot be determined by the tithe. Rather, it's established on the promise of God's grace. Two critical verses that so often are used out of context. 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 8 and 9 says this, And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that in all things at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. Yes, friends, that's a promise for New Testament Christians, for you and I today. But look at Philippians 4.19 as well. And my God will meet all of your needs according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus. There is no small amount of debate on the Bible's teaching of giving from the Old Testament to the New. But friends, I present to you today, they do not stand in opposition to one another. You should not unhitch yourself from the Old Testament when you're thinking about giving. You shouldn't unhitch yourself from the Old Testament when you're thinking about anything. Because when you pull that pin, you're pulling the pin of your fellowship with God. Don't do that. Don't do that. The issue of giving is really one of understanding how much greater is grace than law. 
We're looking for the least demand so that we can satisfy it when God is looking for the greatest blessing so he can pour it out upon us. You know, Philippians 4.13 is a powerful promise and a popular verse. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. How often do you hear people quote that in terms of their bank account, though? In terms to their giving. And yet, that's what Paul is talking about in his provision for life. So often, when it is quoted, it has nothing to do with context or the right reasons within it is given. You see, Paul is stating this, man, I've learned contentment when I had nothing. When my whole life was one big mess of need, I've learned contentment. But he said, when I had every need fully satisfied and overflowing, I've learned contentment in the midst of that too. Because in all of those things, Christ was the one whom all things came to me through. And as he finishes, once he states Philippians 4.13, as he finishes talking about giving, he states this, my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. You see, friends, Philippians 4.13 is not about accomplishment in life. Philippians 4.13 is not about accomplishment in athletics, in business, in personal or other. It's not that God wants you to be a loser. It's just we don't have the grounds to misapply a verse. He's speaking about something very specifically, the provision for all of life. Because in rejoicing in Jesus Christ, Paul says, I will remain faithful and generous no matter the situation in which I find myself. Because God will be the one to supply whatever I give away. God will be the one to supply and make up for the gap that I perceive, but I can't see with the eyes that God's glorious riches will provide for me. Why is it we're so quick to claim Philippians 4.13, but separated and ignore verse 19? When our giving rests on God's promise of grace, we give faithfully and generously at all times. Why? For this reason, because by God's grace we trust he will supply us. Whatever my need is from his glorious riches. I'm going to ask the worship team to go ahead and return. And I'm going to close with this. Another response that I get, I probably won't today after I identify it, because nobody wants to be directly identified with an illustration Pastor, if I give the way that you've laid out here today, I'd have to rearrange and reorganize my whole life. Yep. That's what it means for Jesus to be Lord. That's what it means. Glad you understand. It's fundamental to following Jesus faithfully. Without being motivated by grace, it's unlikely you'll ever honor God with your wealth. When we fail to honor God with our wealth through grace-motivated giving, we rob God of something far greater than money. Glory. Glory. Grace motivates Christians to live as faithful stewards so that the discipline of giving produces greater grace for stronger faith in life.